Hi, my name is Sam Fudo, and welcome to the fifth episode of the second season of my podcast, Understanding Healthcare. Today, I spoke with Dr. Michelle Mello, professor of law at Stanford Law School and professor of health policy at Stanford University School of Medicine. Dr. Mello's work encompasses the effects of law and regulation on healthcare delivery and population health outcomes, in addition to medical liability, public health law, pharmaceuticals and vaccines, biomedical research ethics and governance, health information privacy, and other topics. We talked about COVID-19's long-term impacts on healthcare delivery, her takeaways from the global COVID-19 response, vaccine regulations and recent mandates, how public health law has been shaped throughout the pandemic to ultimately help or hurt us in future situations, and what steps are ahead to make sure we are better prepared for future diseases. So, here's my conversation with Dr. Michelle Mello. Hi, Dr. Mello. Thank you uh, so much for making time today. Happy to. You know, I was wondering if you could talk a bit about, you know, your background and how you got into the areas of health policy and health law. I got interested in health policy as an undergraduate when I was studying moral philosophy. What really drew me in were, were two kind of fundamental philosophical questions. One is how do we ensure fair equality of opportunity for everyone? We live in a liberal democracy that is sort of built on that uh, premise. But having fair equality opportunity means access to primary goods, including healthcare. And so I got curious about what it means to live in a liberal democracy and yet provide for people. And, and so the second related philosophical question was, what do we owe to one another in a polity like the United States um, when, when we fall, you know, when we are in need of assistance, what kinds of supports are we obligated to provide to people and how. So it was those kind of basic moral questions that led me into the field. And then as I went along in graduate school, I got more interested in questions around the sociology of medicine and in particular the role that the law plays or the, the shadow of the law plays in affecting how healthcare is delivered in the United States and how physicians function day to day, what they think about when they take care of patients and how the law can be um, both a perverse force in medicine and also a force for good. Yeah, absolutely. And 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 my next question is, uh, it's a, probably a very broad question, but how would you assess the global response to COVID-19 and are there any points of concern and or success that, you know, you think will help inform future, you know, responses to disease outbreaks or just, I guess, bottlenecks in healthcare that we've seen over the you know past year and a half with uh, a lot of people needing care, but not maybe being able to access that care? So yes, both. There are lots of lessons, both on the success and the failure front. I'll just preface this, though, by saying that one of the things that's frustrating to people who work in public health is how uh, little we seem to learn from one epidemic to the next. You know, people always are focused on the current pandemic, but if you look historically, you know, we, we encounter an epidemic every few years globally, and there's always a lot of study about how we can address it and what we should do next time. And there are blue ribbon committees appointed and all of this and uh, very little of it ever gets done. So it, it's a point of frustration. And, um, you know, maybe this will be the one that, that leads us to make some longer term structural changes, but um, most public health people tend to be fairly pessimistic about that. But there, you know, there's, certainly are some successes that we uh, should learn from here. Um, at the top of the list is the model for vaccine development that we implemented during the pandemic, um, which I'm happy to talk more about. I think there are um, some lesser known success stories around the use of digital epidemiology. Um, not really in the US, we kind of blew it on that front, but many Asian countries got in early with 
the use of mobile apps to improve our surveillance of COVID-19, understand how it's spreading, to um, identify people who needed to be quarantined or isolated, and also to provide supports for those people while they were in quarantine or isolation. Um, and those countries found these technologies to be very helpful in staunching what would otherwise have been catastrophic outbreaks in high density countries. So I think there's some real lessons to be uh, considered there about how we prepare digital infrastructure for the next epidemic. And then finally, a, a general observation about um, things that have gone well is just that astounding acceleration in scientific discovery during COVID-19, which is unlike anything I've seen in my 20 years in public health. Everybody, uh, you know, of necessity, because we couldn't do any other science, pivoted to work on COVID-19. There was also an unprecedented culture of sharing information and um, getting both data and results into the public domain very, very quickly. And uh, it's just as staggering the level of scientific output and that has saved countless lives because people have moved quickly and shared. So I think that's, that's a broader lesson to be learned for scientists. There are obviously many, many points of concern. <laughs> the podcast isn't long enough to talk about all the things that have gone wrong in the global response, but I'll just hit a couple of highlights or lowlights as the case may be. One is that while vaccine development is a success story, I would say vaccine distribution and equity globally um, so far has been a profound failure. Um, the incentives just have not been in place to develop and send vaccines uh, for overseas markets the way they have been in the US. Um, a second bigger and perennial failure is one of infrastructure. Uh, in order to be able to run pandemic policies like stay at home orders and business closures, you have to have enough of a social safety net to make it possible for people to comply with them without starving to death. And even in the US, that simply hasn't been true. You know, we don't have the income support policies, the food support policies that let all people, regardless of income level, comply when we tell them they need to be home for three or four months. And um, that's an even greater problem if you're a, you know, a low income worker in Peru or Ecuador. And that's why we see, you know, just the complete inability of those countries to contain um, outbreaks once they start. And then in a related sense, there's there are infrastructural problems in the healthcare systems of even the best resource countries that they just have not been able to surge in the way that they need to. And in the US, that tends to be because we don't have great detailed plans for interorganizational cooperation. And particularly in a pandemic where every hospital is concerned about its ability to get its hands on enough personnel and equipment to take care of the patients in its local catchment areas, nobody wants to share unless they're told to. So that's been really, really tough and it continues to be really tough right now. Uh, and then the final area of tension, which is really well known and probably doesn't need much comment, is just the effects of federalism in the United States, by which I mean the fact that public health response is mostly handled by the states, not the national government. There's just a limited amount that as a matter of constitutional design, our national government can do. So um, people in some states have fared really, really well and people in other states haven't, and that's a problem. Uh, you touched on in your last answer about a lot of the innovation that has occurred throughout the, the pandemic and, and also now, not only you know within vaccines, but also we're seeing a lot of uh, treatments that are being developed to uh, reduce the severity of disease and and prevent it. Um, can you can you talk? And obviously, we've seen variants come out uh, uh, that that many of these vaccines have actually been able to uh, reduce the severity of and uh, lower the rates of hospitalizations and deaths. Uh, but all of these innovations, like we mentioned, have to go through processes 
in our government uh, related to approval processes, review processes. And many of these processes have been uh, politicized. The science has been taken away at many points throughout the past year and a half in, in, in terms of the public domain and how many people perceive it. Uh, how would you assess these processes have taken place throughout the past year and a half? And is there anything we can learn to then improve or better streamline those approval processes for future situations? Yeah, so I do think as you've done, it's helpful to separate the development process from the approval process. Those aren't managed um, you know, largely by different parts of the government um, and private industry has a different role in, in those two processes. On the development front, as I've said already, I think we've been very, very successful. Uh, the, the Trump administration should be credited with coming up um, with a development plan for vaccines that really, really worked in terms of providing the right incentives to companies to get into the business of making vaccines at enormous expense. Um, and they did that by uh, offering to cover a lot of the R&D development directly, and also by guaranteeing uh, purchase commitments for the products that resulted. So there was no risk on the line for the company, very little risk. Um, we haven't really done that before that I'm aware of, and it, it was a huge success. So that's, that's something that, again, we ought to carry forward. The approval process um, has had a little more checkered history. I do think at the end of the day, it should also be considered a success. I think the approvals that we've gotten from FDA have been um, pretty swift, not as swift as some would like for sure, but pretty swift and very careful. Mm -hmm. um, but I and a lot of other people were very worried at this time a year ago about whether they were going to be conducted free of political influence because the previous administration um, was not leaving the FDA free from political influence, was putting a lot of pressure. And um, the FDA has been without a permanent commissioner for a very long time, and interim commissioners are just very vulnerable to political influence. So um, that's not great. Uh, I think the new White House has been much better about that, and I personally had my confidence in the FDA restored um, well before the first EUAs issued for the vaccines, and I, I do feel confident that they were careful and free from influence. I don't think that the public has necessarily gotten that message, nor do I think the public really understands what an EUA is. That's the mechanism under which the vaccines are initially approved while the company prepares a larger base of data to get full marketing approval. I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about how careful that review is and what's involved in both directions, that people don't understand how much evidence of effectiveness underlies an EUA. It's a lot. But um, the evidence about safety is necessarily very limited because it comes only from clinical trials, which in some cases have been very small. You know, like the, the trials that are being done right now are just completed for kids, mm -hmm. have had less than 3,000 people in them, and they can be the best run trials in the world, but they still can't detect rare side effects. And so it's been difficult for people to understand well, how much evidence is there really behind these vaccines? How does that change when it converts to full approval? And how should it affect my decision making about vaccination? Yeah. And, and you know, Obviously, we've talked a lot about uh, vaccines and treatments that uh, are sort of more short-term. People are getting them now uh, to uh, deal with sort of the pandemic and the surge we've seen over the past year and a half. Uh, but another issue is sort of this like long COVID that many people have talked about in these uh, condition, uh, you know, pre-existing conditions essentially that many people will have, millions of people will have 
for the next many years to come, uh, potentially. Uh, but sort of more in the near term, what are your thoughts on how uh, insurance companies, we obviously have a huge public, but also private insurance infrastructure in the United States. Uh, what are your thoughts on how they've covered the vaccine? Uh, and is there anything you'd like to see moving forward related to COVID-19 or just, I guess, general health situations in general uh, in, in terms of how have uh, we've, we've adapted uh, to the times that we're in with regard to coverage and payment for these uh, innovations? Yeah, well, the issue of financial access to vaccines is really critically important. We do a pretty good job with it in the US that historically hasn't always been the case, but um, today the government has taken a lot of vaccines out of insurers' hands in terms of procurement. So the Vaccines for Children program is the way that we have a, obtain a supply of vaccines and make sure that kids can get them at an affordable price. And with the COVID vaccines, they haven't used that program, but what they did do is pass something called the CARES Act. Um, early in the pandemic, which um, obligates most private insurance plans to cover COVID-19 vaccine without any cost sharing for the patient. Medicare and Medicaid also cover the vaccines, and um, there are just a few Americans you know, who fall outside those three kinds of insurance arrangements, but even in those other private plans, there has not been resistance to covering the vaccine. And one of the reasons is because of the way that it was procured, it's really cheap. And um, another reason is that vaccines always pay for themselves for insurers. They're, they're happy to pay for them. So the problem is not with getting the vaccine covered. The problem is with the non-vaccine costs of getting vaccinated. So if you're a typical American worker, at least until very recently, getting a COVID-19 vaccine involved quite a bit of work on your part. You had to have the savvy and wherewithal to know where to get it, how to get an appointment. You, you know, until the summer, you maybe had to spend a lot of time online trying to find an appointment. Then you had to get time off work to get to that appointment and the follow-up appointment for your second dose and the appointments for your mom and your dad and your kids. So there are a lot of people who struggle with those issues. And that is the reason why today there persists in being a, a racial and ethnic disparity in vaccination rates among people who are favorably disposed to getting vaccinated because um, professional workers, predominantly white workers, have less difficulty overcoming those access barriers. So those are the kinds of costs that we need to be focused on reducing. And we haven't really gotten there. Right, I, I completely agree with those. And obviously, uh, many of these disparities that we've seen along socioeconomic and, and racial lines have have sort of been long-standing, but many many people's eyes have been opened, uh, especially throughout the past year and a half, to these uh, issues that, uh, like I just said, are uh, yes. very long-standing. Um, you know, prior to the pandemic, and obviously moving forward, uh, there's been an increase in uh, laws and regulations uh, related to health in the U.S. that have uh, done various things, expanding coverage to uh, care for many people, uh, like Medicaid expansion in, in, in many different states. Uh, so I guess I was wondering if you had any thoughts on you know, that example or any other laws and regulations I haven't mentioned that have possibly helped to maybe blunt the potential uh, impacts of COVID-19 or maybe made it worse where there was a lack of these uh, mm -hmm. laws in, in, in some areas. So what were your thoughts on that? Yeah. So where I think we've done a good job is on the health care coverage front. So in addition to the Medicaid expansion, part of the CARES Act was making sure that when people got sick with COVID, they could receive treatment without uh, cost to themselves. 
And that's been really important in making sure that people present for treatment and can afford it and are not, you know, after facing already devastating financial loss because of stay-at-home orders and business closures face a further loss because of hospital bills. So that's all good. Um, where we haven't done a great job is on some of the broader social policies that again are important to supporting people through a pandemic, whether they're sick or not, but particularly when they're sick or when they have a family member who's sick. You know, with infectious disease, when a family member gets sick, obviously it affects the whole household, uh, not just in the sense that they have to provide care, but they're subject to liberty restrictions that, um, um, you know, anybody who's living in a multi-person household knows that it's, it's like a house of cards. If one person goes down, there are all kinds of ripple effects on that family and, and earning and the ability to attend school and so forth. So we have not done a great job of having policies in place to prevent the house of cards from collapsing. And by that, I mean um, workers having paid sick leave so that they can stay home and take care of a family member, stay home if they have symptoms and feel like they probably shouldn't be going to work, get to the doctor to have a test if they need it. Um, living wage is another issue, you know, the pandemic exposed, again, how many Americans are living right on the margins of disaster because they do not make enough money to save anything. And so when a crisis like this happens, and particularly when it results in a sustained loss of income, like business closure, uh, you know, these, these families are absolutely devastated. And that requires a pretty deep structural solution. Um, and then finally, a, a more modest but equally important intervention just has to do with basic food supports. Uh, you know, there are a lot of people in the United States who became food insecure during the pandemic. But, uh, you know, it, it's just astonishing to me that in a country as well be a large, you can't get food to people confined at home. You know, traditionally, I think people broadly have thought about healthcare and health services as an interaction between a doctor and a patient, and that's it. And I think something that you've touched on a little bit, and, and, and I want to get to more here is, Obviously, this experience of a pandemic has maybe broadened people's perspectives when it comes to how many things impact health. Obviously, social determinants health has been around for a long time and, and been studied for a long time now. Uh, how do you see, you know, healthcare delivery changing, diversity in different types of healthcare providers uh, moving forward as a result of everything we've gone through the past year and a half? Well... You know, what's been odd about the pandemic is that it's both increased and reduced demand for healthcare at the same time. You know, it dramatically increased demand for certain kind of healthcare, but people who didn't have COVID and could possibly defer healthcare did. And in many cases were required to do so when hospitals shut down their elective services. So it wasn't a, a pandemic that like in general created a need for more healthcare providers just across the board. Of course, we've long had nursing shortages. We've long had the maldistribution of physicians and other highly skilled professionals in particular areas of the country. And, and those, those problems will endure. But I think um, what I would highlight is the distinctive aspect of the pandemic in terms of effect on care has to do with telehealth. Mm -hmm. Because so many healthcare facilities were closed to elected patients for such a long time, they had to pivot to telehealth to take care of people who couldn't wait. And you know, and they know this was going to be an 18 month plus pandemic. You can be sure that pivot would have been even more pronounced. And um, what they found is that when the law was relaxed to allow them to make that pivot in useful ways, it really worked for most people. Yeah, you know, for sure there are some older people and others who will struggle with this kind of technology for lots of other people. 
having a video visit worked really, really well and expanded access to healthcare in all kinds of ways. So I expect that model will persist. And I, you know, just anecdotally, I see that in the practices of the healthcare providers that my family sees that even though everybody's back in the office and they're accepting all patients in person, some of these visits now are routinely video because people don't need to be in the office and it's easier and more efficient and they can do more volume uh, if they don't have to be. So I think that's a really positive development and the big challenges will be how to ensure that it's done in a, in a manner that reaches everybody equitably. Right, yeah, absolutely. And I think that'll be in, uh, something you touched on there is something that's been amazing to me is sort of that rapid acceleration of the use of telehealth and at the same time telehealth, the, the systems by which it existed had to improve to accommodate you know, all of the services that were being provided uh, through that medium. My, uh, my next question uh, gets to some of the more the more recent uh, regulations uh, we've seen more, you know, in various states across the country, uh, at every level of government, federal, state, and local, as it relates to, you know, addressing the some regions with lower vaccination rates, uh, and so I I guess I was wondering what your thoughts have been on the de development we've seen in vaccine mandates in very different. Uh, you know, parts of the country and, and how do those mandates, obviously, uh, that we need to address, you know, the Delta variant, the new mu variant, uh, how do we, how, how do those balance with the recent sort of uh, uh, battles in court that we've seen uh, throughout the past many months? Yeah, I mean, that's the million dollar question right now. Should we have mandates? Are they, are they is the juice worth the squeeze here, so to speak? Um, you know, there have been a lot of developments on the legal front um, due to two things. Number one, the number of vaccine resistors has always been, you know, small. It's just been a few, mostly upper class white women who don't want to have their kids vaccinated. And now it's large because of the political schisms and the way that um, conservative media have fed vaccine resistance. So there are a lot of potential plaintiffs out there. And then the second thing that's distinctive now is that because of rapid turnover in um, federal judges during the last presidential administration, we now have um, a lot of judges sitting in lower courts as well as you know, justices in the Supreme Court who are taking a different view about the importance of protecting religious liberty. And that is playing out in sometimes unexpected ways in litigation brought challenging vaccination mandates. All that is by way of saying, um, when organizations have imposed these mandates, they have expected to and have encountered substantial legal pushback. That really raises the question of whether mandates are a good idea, is it worth doing? And, you know, I'm coming around to the view that our national experiment with voluntary vaccination has run its course and has not been successful in many areas of the country. So stronger steps are needed and justified. However, the conversation is now turning to kids and that's a different calculus for me for a variety of reasons. Um, one reason is that when we impose vaccination mandates for kids, it's always because the disease involved has a high risk of transmission in schools. Measles, pox, these are things that spread in schools. That's not true for COVID when students mask. The evidence on mask wearing in schools is really favorable and growing. And so the marginal benefit of requiring vaccination for that population is just really not clear if you measure it in terms, not of the number of people who get vaccinated, but the number of cases that you actually prevent. 
And then the second dynamic, which is equally real, is that the safety data that we have on kids is just really low at the moment. Not that it's unfavorable, it's simply based on a small sample. And that again means that we know um, a good deal about common side effects, but we don't know a good deal about uncommon side effects. So you put that uncertainty together with the prospect of relatively low marginal benefit from requiring vaccination, as opposed to having a system where it's voluntary and kids must mask in school. And to me, it's it's not clear that we ought to be moving towards school now. Right, and that, and that speaks to the importance of all of the other preventative measures we've done throughout the past year and a half that have really, uh, you know, allowed us to, you know, curb or subside many of the, uh, you know, worst circumstances. Um, but you also touched on sort of two sort of tracks there, which is I think the timeline for obviously uh, vaccinations for, you know, people above the age of, you know, 18 or even 16 uh, versus those younger than that. It's sort of on two different timelines. Uh, and, and, and something I've seen recently is, is you know many companies have uh, mandated vaccines for their workers, which has actually uh, uh, actually created a lot of uh, you know encouraged more people to actually go to those companies because they know that then okay we'll have a safer or healthier workplace. Um, uh, getting more broadly to you know public health law, uh, particularly obviously like you talked about earlier, much of this is done at the state level. Um, you know, particularly in the area you know in health departments and the CDC among others. Uh, health law has been strengthened, but also weakened at many points throughout the pandemic. And so uh, I was wondering your thoughts on the implications that these uh, you know, situations have for uh, future uh, disease threats or even just, you know, our daily lives and in, in health policy. And are there any specific examples uh, that you can think of of this strengthening or weakening of, you know, public health law? Mm -hmm. and how does that impact us long term? Well, I think there may be a couple areas where things have gotten better. Um, one is the toolkit is bigger. You know, most of the things that have been done during COVID-19 have never been done before. These stay-at-home orders, business closures, you know, mass gathering restrictions. The last time we did any of those things was like 1918, and there was no data collected on how well they worked. This time we have a lot of data. You know, there's just been a huge amount of science studying the effects of these kinds of orders. So next time public health officials will have more tools at their disposal and they'll have a better sense of when those tools are likely to be effective and blend or what conditions are likely to be effective and for whom they're likely to be effective. Mm -hmm. I think that's one important thing. I think the, the second important thing is um, that public health is just more visible now and public health law is more visible now. And that means that there are more people drawn into the field to study it, to help craft it, to help improve it. Uh, and so just as a, as a field, I think there, there's more minds in it at the moment, and that's, that's pushing it forward. On the weakening front, um, there are a couple of things that concern me. Number one is there, the instability that I've already mentioned about religious liberty protections. There's just a lot of uncertainty right now about what that will mean in the future when a health official wants to restrict religious gatherings, for example, or uh, mandate vaccination, you know, is a religious exemption required. There's actually some hits in the court now that if you do require, <laughs> you're actually going to trigger to your higher level of judicial uh, review. I mean, if you do allow religious exemptions, you can actually trigger a higher level of judicial review as well. So it's a fraught area. And then the second and, and much more concerning development is that in a number of you know, red states, there have been steps taken by legislatures to restrict the power of 
either themselves, future legislatures, or governors or health officials to um, issue the kinds of orders that might be required in a serious pandemic. And uh, it's understandable why those moves have been made. And there's a lot of feeling that health officials um, have too much power, too much discretion, and that, and that they, in some jurisdictions, abuse that discretion, contrary to the will of the political majority. But the, the steps that have been taken are themselves very crude and limit public health powers in a way that could be absolutely devastating the next time around. For example, a rule uh, saying that before you can issue an emergency order, you have to go through a notice and comment period. Notice and comment periods are months, if not years long periods when agencies have to tell the public what they're thinking of doing, invite the public to comment on it, and then respond to all those comments. The idea that we would have to do something like that before imposing a stay-at-home order okay. is absolutely ridiculous. Um, and, and so I, I think there's been an overreaction um, and an overpivot to um, two burdensome restrictions on public health powers. Right. And that, and that sort of takes the emergency out of the emergency right. sort of meaning behind those, those why you would use those. Um, uh, two more questions. Uh, how has this pandemic sort of made you reflect on you know, your career in the areas that you, you know, work on and, and study and, and, and yeah, I guess what can, what can we and what have you learned from the experiences, you know, throughout the pandemic, but also, you know, looking forward uh, in, you know, creating effective policies that improve everyone's health? Mm -hmm. Well, I think in addition to bringing more visibility to, to law in public health, it, it's just shined a brighter light on the field of public health itself. Public health is a kind of while you were sleeping field. It, it's a lot of stuff that goes on in the background that keeps us healthy every day that most people don't know anything about and don't care about. Um, and I think people have appreciated the profound importance of what public health does. Now, many people don't appreciate it at all. <laughs> many people have made it their full-time occupation over the last 18 months to harass and victimize public health officials who are public servants, um, working on, for low wages in an extremely stressful environment, trying to do the, the right thing very hard, not always getting it right, but trying very hard. Um, but I think for most Americans, there's a new understanding of the importance of public health as a field. And I hope that will lead to an increased willingness to fund the things that public health does, whether it's infectious disease control or supporting healthy babies and mothers, all the other things that, that public health departments do. I think the other thing that it's done has um, really highlighted the intersection of infectious disease control law with a, a other swaths of law we've talked about already that also serve to promote the conditions in which people can be healthy. Um, there's been an increasing focus in public health over the last decade or so on the social determinants of health and over the last couple of years on so-called health equity on ensuring that everybody has equitable access to the things that can keep them healthy. And the conversation is and should be now on what other policies that are not facially related to infectious disease control we have to put in place to make sure that everybody is safe and protected, whether the health threat is a new virus um, or obesity or uh, predatory tobacco or other product companies uh, or something that we haven't even thought of yet. And I guess I would just add on a personal level what the, the pandemic has, has done to me or for me, I guess, is um, really provoke some sustained reflection about um, the importance of having meaningful work and feeling purposeful and feeling that one's work makes a difference. You know, I, I train lawyers for a living and, and many lawyers um, go through the early stages of their career profoundly disappointed in the amount of public impact they feel they're able to have or the lack of meaning in their work. And um, 
while it's been very stressful to work in public health, obviously over the past 18 months, um, having purpose and, and understanding that one's work has an impact is actually really important and, and sustaining. And, and I, I completely agree with all of that. And, and you know, to, to my last question here, it sort of leads me in, which is sort of in this, you know, time where we're sort of moving towards this sort of new normal, if you will, uh, as more people get vaccinated and, and we sort of try to address the issues we've talked about throughout, you know, the past few minutes, the past, past couple of minutes, you know, what would your advice be to, you know, young people who are interested in careers in, you know, like you said, public health, public service? you know, medicine, what, what would that advice be, you know, look, move, looking forward? Yeah, I, I think my advice is to say that you're, you're very, very welcome um, into the field. And, and I do hope that this will cause many young people to think not only about medicine, which is a field that everybody knows about, sees on television, but, but public health, which is actually closer to many people's um, mission to try to improve people's health on a, a broad scale rather than, than one person at, at a time. Um, I would also say that um, while the pandemic has taxed healthcare providers in extraordinary ways, it's also brought renewed attention to the concept of wellness in all kinds of workers, but in healthcare workers especially. That's a problem in the healthcare profession, it's in all caring professions, and I think it means that your future in healthcare is likely to be better than um, the, the present is for, for many people who have been raised under a system that can be brutal. Um, that can lead to burnout, uh, but now is attracting new attention and, and care and consideration from leadership in the professions. Uh, and I, I completely agree. And I, I think that sort of speaks to, you know, our definitions of, you know, self hygiene have changed. How do we, how do we think about uh, if I don't feel well, should I go to work? Should I not go to work? Uh, and just our broader like thought process behind, uh, you know, our health, is not just our health, it affects everyone else's health around us. So, uh, and that's actually, that's sort of been, you know, a message that's flowed through the entire conversation we've had today. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, Dr. Mello, thank you so much for making the time to meet with me today. It means a lot and I uh, really appreciate Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope my conversation with Dr. Mello can shine light upon topics related to health policy and law that aren't often discussed but have major impacts on our health and well-being in the long term. So, I hope you're doing well and staying safe, and remember, we can't just consume healthcare, we have to understand healthcare.